John chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, I am, uh, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Let's just pray for Vaughan quickly before he comes to speak. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in it. We thank you for all that you have for us this morning. Bless Vaughan and be with him as he speaks and ministers to us. Amen. Well, let's see who recognises these words. We'll build a world of our own, which no one else can build, and all our sorrows we'll leave outside. And I know that we'll find there'll be peace of mind when we live in a world of our own. Any takers? Anyone recognise? Before too many hands go up, um, if you do recognise, you're probably quite old. Um, Because uh, those are the words of the seekers. 
yes, you recognise that. Yeah, well done, you. Uh, late 1960s. Um, they express the thoughts, the hopes, the aspirations of many. Come kind of idea that if we could only find that one special person, a deep, exclusive relationship, then we'll find the key to security and happiness. Then we'll make sense of our existence. And many people, this might have been you, certainly there are many around us, go from relationship to relationship, sometimes from marriage to marriage, and they're still looking. And they're thinking to themselves, if only I could find that special person. And form a relationship based on the magic seas, chemistry and commitment. Then we'll be happy ever after. Well, the woman in John 4 is just like that. She's a very contemporary figure. You can sense there's a desperate thirst within, and she's looking to quench that thirst in relationships. She keeps trying to build a world of her own around an exclusive relationship, but somehow every time it just falls apart. Five times she's been married, she's now living with a sixth man, and throughout her tragic life, she's never given up. I wouldn't be at all surprised if every time she says to herself, he's the one. This is the one. He's the one who's going to bring me fulfillment and happiness. But they never did. At least not for long. They never quenched her thirst. Relationships, marriage, great gifts of God but never designed to be the be-all and end-all of life. And that's the problem. So often we bring to relationships and to marriage expectations that they were never meant to bear. Are you thirsty? And where are you looking to satisfy that thirst within? Just one very simple point in this session. It comes, I think, from John 4. Uh, so if you're looking for headings, there's no headings. There's just one point. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy the thirst within. I think you remember that? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Only Jesus Christ can satisfy the thirst within. You remember in the first session, we, we recognized the human heart. That's, the, that's what drives us. And because we're not made to be self-sufficient, we're made in the image of God to relate to him and to worship him, our hearts, I'd suggested to you, are like heat-seeking missiles. They're looking for something to latch onto. And they're designed to latch onto God and to worship him. But so often we latch onto other things. It's so important our hearts are focused in the right direction because we're looking elsewhere, we'll never find that satisfaction. And the Bible, I wonder if you realize this, the Bible is a love story. It's not, it's not full of rules. There are commands, but they fit into the context of an amazing love story about a God of eternal love who made you and me in his image to relate to him in love. About a love that was spurned as human beings latched onto other things and rejected the love of God. About a love that will not let us go. A love in Christ that's so gracious that he sends, that God sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a bridegroom, seeking a bride, his people, the church. 
of love that's so committed to bringing back people into relationship with himself that he's prepared to die. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy the thirst within. Here in John 4, we find Jesus traveling through Samaria. In Samaria, you've got Galilee up north, you've got Jerusalem and Judea down south. Samaria is this little bit in the middle, and Jews hated Samaritans because they they weren't quite kosher, if I could put it like that. Samaritans have intermingled, intermarried with Gentiles, so they weren't seen as racially pure, and more than that, they were heretics because they, they didn't follow all the teaching of the Bible. And instead of going down to Jerusalem to worship, they set up their own temple at Mount Gerizim and they worshipped there. And as far as godly Jews were concerned, Samaritans needed to be avoided. So many Jews would make a detour. Rather than going through Samaria, they'd go round it to get to Jerusalem. But here is Jesus going through Samaria. It's hot, I imagine. It normally is in Israel. And here we have Jesus and his disciples resting by a well. It's the sixth hour, which is midday. A very odd time for a local to collect her water. Of course, no taps in those days. You had to go to the well, but you wouldn't go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. You'd have a, a big jug, and you'd choose a time of the day when you'd go, and then that would be enough water for the day. Midday, when the sun is at its highest, at its hottest. Very odd time to go and get water. No one else would be there then, would they? I wonder whether that's why she chose that moment. We can't be sure, but no doubt a woman with this kind of colourful relational history was rather frowned on by her respectable neighbours. If she went there on her own, no one would be able to shun her. There'd be no one who could tut-tut as they normally did. No normal religious Jewish man would be seen dead speaking to a woman like her. For a start, rabbis didn't talk in public with women. And this is a Samaritan woman. And she's a Samaritan woman with a colourful history. And I just wonder whether society has given you a low sense of self-esteem because of your sex, your ethnicity, your sexuality, some disability, class, social status, whatever it might be. And you, you kind of sense people shunning you or you've had that experience in your life. Just in case there's any doubt about the matter, Jesus just doesn't think in those categories he approaches this woman with love and respect and he initiated the conversation he says verse 7 will you give me a drink she's amazed verse 9 you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman how can you ask me for a drink and John adds for Jews do not associate with Samaritans And then the conversation is taken up a gear. Jesus says, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's 
been described as a, an inner fountain of bubbling vitality that satisfies a person's thirst, not just once, but forever. Verse 13, Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water, the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman's interest is aroused. And she says, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You see, she's still locked into thinking about natural water. But you can sense the longing behind those words, can't you? And just picture her there with her water pot that she'd come every day to fill. And that water pot you can see as somehow standing for the futility of her existence. There it stood, empty again. She'd filled it yesterday. She'd fill it again tomorrow. It was like her life, a symbol of never-ending thirst. She'd spend the rest of her days filling that wretched pot, and at the end, its appetite would be as insatiable as ever. Empty. Empty again. That was her water pot. And that was her. And she's not alone. One psychologist a few years ago was asked how he'd summarise the modern age. And he said, for me, the key word is emptiness. And it may be you're conscious of an emptiness within. And people around us are, are very conscious of that. And they all look somewhere to try and fill it. It could be money. John D. Rockefeller, perhaps the richest man in the 20th century, was once asked, how much money does it take for someone to be really satisfied? And he replied, just a little bit more. Money, career, pleasure, success, or sex and relationships. seems that's what this world is looking to. Our culture is very confused about sex. So on the one hand, the message, and I think there's been a, a bit of a backlash against this in, in recent years, not least with the Me Too movement, but there's been for a long time this kind of idea that, that sex is just a bodily appetite. There's nothing more to it than that. So if you're hungry, have a burger. You're thirsty, have a Coke or a Pepsi if you prefer. You're turned on, have sex. There's nothing to it, it's just a bodily appetite. And yet on the other hand, as C.S. Lewis famously put it, sex is the one thing venerated in a world without veneration. It's a nothing, it's just a bodily appetite. And yet it's everything. It's the key to satisfaction in life. Well, the reality is, it's not a nothing. And instinctively, I think people know it is not just recreational, but profoundly relational. Talking to one young, young man who, who wasn't a Christian and was really drawn to Christian faith. But he said, you, you, you need to, to know I'm, I'm promiscuous. I've been living a promiscuous life for a long, long time. And he, he said it as if it was a, a nothing. And then he paused for a moment and he said, but you know, every time I have sex with someone, I leave something of myself behind. It's a revealing comment, isn't it? See, that the craving 
that uh, we feel is not a craving for sex. It's, it's a craving for relationships, craving for a deep intimacy with another person. Douglas Coupland's a novelist who's a very shrewd observer of the contemporary world, and he put these words in one of his characters. Starved of affection, terrified of abandonment, I began to wonder if sex was really just an excuse to look deeply into another human being's eyes. That longing, not just for sex, but for intimacy. God is love. From eternity, he's existed in the loving relationship within the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He made us in his image as relational beings, made to relate to him and to one another. And as men and women, he designed marriages to be part of his creation design. And the committed sexual relationship of a man and a woman for life, producing one flesh union which can bring enormous joy and happiness as well in a fallen world as great suffering and pain. But however good a marriage can be, and many marriages can be very good indeed, However good a human friendship can be, they are not the ultimate relationship. Above all, we're made to relate to God. And if we try and make ultimate human friendships and human romantic relationships, we will destroy those things. Here's what the great Francis Schaeffer, an American apologist and evangelist in the last century, said. We are finite. And we do not expect to find final sufficiency in any human relationship, including marriage. The final sufficiency is to be found only in relationship with God. If someone tries to find everything in a man, woman, friend, friend relationship, they destroy the very thing they want and destroy the one they love. They suck them dry. They eat them up. And they, as well as the relationship, are destroyed. How so? Because... I need you to be everything to me. And so I'm very demanding relationally. You've got to love me. You've got to say you love me. You've got to know that I understand that that expression of love has got to be in exactly the way I need it to be, as often as I need it to be. And you've got to be perfect. We've got to be perfect. And that puts a huge amount of pressure on any relationship and undermines our chances of achieving a long-lasting relationship. Because no lover, no friend quite lives up to standards. And so that, that initial euphoria, this beautiful, wonderful person, she's the one, he's the one, or the honeymoon period of a marriage. But then reality bites, and disillusionment sets in because He's not perfect, she's not perfect, I'm not perfect, we're not perfect. And then maybe it's the time to move on, if, if not in reality, then emotionally. Here's a woman who did move on, five husbands. She's still not fine, what she's looking for. The Bible is saying this, this thirst within, which we try and look to all sorts of things to satisfy, including sex and relationships, is not designed to be satisfied ultimately by anything in this world. It's a longing for God. And we're created to exist not just as physical beings in a physical world, but as spiritual beings in relationship with God. 
Lord Byron, sometimes known as the playboy poet in the 18th century, and he tasted most of the world's pleasures, very wealthy, he was known as a libertine, hedonist. Here are some words of Byron. I've drunk every cup of joy, heard every trump of fame, deeply drunk, drunk draughts that common millions might have drunk. And then I died of thirst because there was nothing more to drink. Jeremiah 2 verse 13, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. And do you remember the basic point? Only Jesus Christ can satisfy the thirst within. Beautiful words, aren't they, verse 13? Anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The background imagery is from the Old Testament. Israel disobeyed God. They end up in exile in Babylon, away from home, but above all, away from God. And then the prophets spoke about salvation. And one of the images they used is a very evocative image, this image of water. Of course, would have made a huge amount to those living in a dry, hot, dusty land. The words of Isaiah, for instance, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and drink. Or Ezekiel, having a vision of a new temple. The Babylonians had destroyed the old temple. And this new temple, dominating the horizon, and out of the temple came a stream that went to the ends of the earth, bringing life and vitality everywhere. And the image is clear. There's going to be a restored relationship with God. And from restored relationship with God will come living water that refreshes everyone who come to drink. And this is the imagery that the Lord Jesus Christ is picking up on. Because the big question is, where can this water be found? And the woman seems to change things very dramatically in the conversation. Jesus has um, gotten a bit close to home. So she says, sir, give me this water. I'd like some of that. And he says, go call your husband and come back. And immediately she says, I've got no husband. It seems she's being defensive. She doesn't want to go there. This is dangerous territory. She doesn't want this religious man to know what's really been going on. But of course he knows her, just as he knows everything about us. And he said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. And then she says, Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. That's Mount Gerizim in Samaria. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What's going on there? And some people say she's introducing a red herring into the conversation. Jesus has got a bit closer to home. And do you know sometimes when you talk to people about Christian faith and suddenly there's a raw nerve struck and up comes the question, oh, well, I don't believe it because of all this suffering or because science disproves it. Because those can be genuine questions. But other times you get a sense there's just a smoke screen to get you off their back. 
And some people say, that's what's going on here. The woman's nervous. She doesn't want to get into personal territory. So she raises some theological question about where the right place to worship God is. It's not from her heart. I don't think that's what's going on. I think she's beginning to thirst for true living water. But where is it to be found? Where is God found? Samaritans say, here, the Jews say, Jerusalem, where can I meet with God? And Jesus says, in effect, the Jews were right. It was in Jerusalem. That's where God was to be met. But all that's changing now, verse 23. The time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. What's he saying? Well, now that Jesus has come, there's no holy place that you need to go to meet with him. John's gospel, right at the beginning of this gospel, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. Before the temple was built, the tabernacle, the tent, was the place where God met with his people. A little bit later, in the vicinity of the temple, he says, destroy this temple and God will raise it again in three days. Only later did they realize he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. He is the temple of God. He's where we meet with God. And as we approach him in the Spirit, as the Holy Spirit enables us to see the truth about him because he is the way, the truth and the life. Then we meet with God. We come into his God, God's presence. We, as it were, enter his temple. He is the new temple through whom streams of living water flow to the ends of the earth, to all who trust in him. A little bit later in John 7, he's preaching in the, the vicinity of the temple. And he cries out in a loud voice, let all who are thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. Later in John's Gospel, you get the account of the crucifixion. And we read that a soldier, spears, pierced the side of Jesus, and out of his side came blood and water. Some people say, well, that's interesting. That's medical evidence of death because the blood and the serum separate. I don't think that's what John is doing in describing it. Blood and water, it's deeply symbolic. Blood, that's his death as a sacrifice. He died in our place, taking the sin, and the penalty for sin, in our place. And water, speaking of the consequence of that sacrificial death, the living water, as the Holy Spirit helps us to believe in Jesus and to trust in him and to come into relationship with him, streams of living water enter our hearts. Does this image of living water fit your mental image of the Christian life? Back in the old days there were donkeys on beaches. I hadn't seen them for years, but donkeys would go up and down beaches and kids would would have donkey rides. And one kid was speaking to its mother and and looked at a donkey and said, Mummy, I think that donkey must be a Christian donkey. I said, really dear, why do you say that? Oh, he's got such a long face. And many people, the image of the Christian life is it's it's a bit dour. It's all about obeying rules. Not doing 
what we want to do, having to do what we don't really want to do. Those streams of living water. It's about a relationship with God. You know, when you love someone, there are sacrifices involved. Many of you are married. And you make commitment. Forsaking all others. That's a big cost. But that's not the focus of it. Why are you doing that? Because you've said yes to this other person. Do you love them? And as a consequence of your love for this other person, you're saying no to other things. But the heart of it is not the saying no, it's the saying yes. And the saying yes, not to some dog, dogmatic belief system. It's saying yes to Jesus. And the moment we say yes to him, we're joined to him by the Holy Spirit. And streams of living water flow within us. See, the Christian life is not just a new status, sanctified, justified, in the right with God. So that we've got a little bit like a, a kidney donor card that people used to have in their, in their wallets, waiting till they died. And a kidney donor card was just a card that was saying, um, if this person dies, their kidneys can be given. Well, it's not very useful in normal life, is it? It's there in the wallet to be used at death. You can't pay your Sainsbury's bill with a kidney donor card. And the, the image of some people of the Christian life is, it's a certificate of justification sitting in the pocket, and it's nice to know it's there, because when you die, you can take out the certificate of justification, I pray the prayer, I, I'm, I'm, I'm justified, I'm right with God, new status. But it doesn't change your life. Christian life is not just a new status, it's a new life. The moment we're forgiven, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and joins us to Jesus so that we love him and we want to live for him. If we believe these truths, it will transform our lives. And the more we recognize that only Jesus Christ can satisfy the thirst within, the more we'll turn from those other idols, be it money, popularity, career, and yes, sex, and relationships. The more we recognize those things can never ultimately satisfy me. And we'll look to him and trust in him. See, many here have been, and maybe right now are, miserable. Because in your heart of hearts, you still believe the lie that satisfaction in life depends on a perfect relationship with another human being. The result is you're bringing impossible burdens on your relationships. At times they're strained to breaking point because you're expecting that person to be perfect. For those who are single, divorced, bereaved, or in a difficult marriage, are in danger of drowning in self-pity because you think life's not worth living, because this is the essence of life. Or you've made terrible sacrifices at the altar of the God of Romance. And even though your Bible tells you you should keep your marriage vows, you shouldn't have sex before marriage. You should marry someone who is going to help you, join with you in worshipping Jesus. But there's something more important than what the Bible is saying because I've got to find that special person. Now, idols cannot deliver. Salt water just makes you more thirsty. Living water is found only 
in Jesus Christ. As we close, I want to read an extract from one of the Narnia books. Some of you will know it. It's in the silver chair, and Jill is a little girl who's very thirsty. And at last, she's found some water. The only trouble is, there's a lion that stands between her and the water. And the lion, of course, is Aslan, who represents Jesus. If you're thirsty, you may drink. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and empress, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die first, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Let me pray. Loving Father, we believe that only your Son, Jesus Christ, can satisfy the thirst within. And help us to believe that, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. And may this wonderful truth impact us where it needs to. And change us for your glory.